Father, thank you for uh, the time and privilege you've given us to be in your word today. And I pray that you would use it mightily in our hearts. That we would become more and more like your son Jesus. Help us to understand this passage as you intended and to allow you by your spirit to convict us and correct us and train us in righteousness so that we would be adequate equipped for every good deed that we would become more and more like your son, bringing glory to you. So we thank you for your word. We pray you would bless it as it goes out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you go to many of the so-called evangelical churches around, you'll find most of them have this as their mission statement, uh, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And uh, what they're talking about is, first of all, the great commandment, loving the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and, and strength. And the, the, great, the great commission, go and uh, make disciples. And uh, yet what they imply from those passages usually is evangelism. There's nothing wrong with evangelism. And just simply a generic love for God. But as we're going to see today, as we look at uh, the Word of God, we're going to see that the making of disciples um, has to do with teaching them to obey. And the great commandment has to do with loving the Lord. And we're going to see the connection between love and obedience. And how if we are truly following the great commandment and the great commission, then that church or we should be obeying the Lord. You see, uh, we're going to look today and find out what God expects from us. You know, so many people give a, a gospel that is uh, with no cost. Uh, trust Jesus and all this will happen for you. And yes, it is free gift. Yes, salvation is free. But no cost at all. That uh, just go ahead and keep living the way your life is and you're fine now. you got Jesus well, the reality is there is a cost. And even Jesus talked about that temporal cost of suffering and, and difficulties that come. But there's a, there's a cost. There's something that God requires of us when we are in him. And I believe we're going to see encouragement, actually, for those who are truly saved, who are suffering for doing what is right. Encouragement to continue to obey his word. Would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? And we are rapidly approaching the close of this book, so we'll be praying about what the Lord would have us study together next. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 and 5. And it's been a couple weeks since we've been in 2 Thessalonians, so I want to review the context for us. Uh, you might uh, remember from 1 Thessalonians, our study there, that in Acts 17 we have the account of the conversion of the Thessalonians. Uh, that uh, the, We have the account of the birth of the church of the Thessalonians. And we see that the Apostle Paul remained with them for three weeks until the Jews of the city were so enraged by his teaching concerning Jesus that they created a riot and drove him and he fled to Berea and then on to Athens. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, we have the account of the conversion of these Thessalonians. After hearing the gospel, we see the incredible reality. They responded to it with full conviction. And they turned to God from idols to serve the one and only true living God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
They received the word, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Now, after uh, they sent Paul sent Timothy to find out about their spiritual condition, uh, we see that uh, the response to Timothy's report is this letter that Paul writes to these Thessalonians during his 18-month stay in Corinth, probably around the spring of 50 AD. Now, since 2 Thessalonians has the same introduction as 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they're all still together, it is quite apparent that not much time has gone by since the first letter was written. And so this church is very young in the faith. They are most likely less than a year old in the faith. And yet the Apostle Paul has launched uh, by the Spirit some in, in, in some intense doctrine in 1 Thessalonians, and he will continue in 2 Thessalonians, and the implication is that they can understand, believe, and obey at that age in the faith. And so what was prompting uh, this writing of this second letter so quickly after the first? Well, we saw in chapter 1 that these Thessalonians were trusting Jesus. They were loving one another, and they were persevering a very difficult they were persevering very difficult uh, persecution. Um, and the Lord God had to encourage them in the midst of their affliction for following him, had to encourage them that those who were afflicting them, that he, God did not miss a beat. They would pay the penalty. God would bring about retribution and they would pay the penalty of eternal destruction, those who were persecuting him. And yet these Thessalonians were on their way to glory. And we need to know that when we're suffering. It seems like the persecutors are getting away with it, but they're not. God hasn't missed anything. And so we need to be encouraged. And we saw that, that suffering is temporal. And there are other glories to follow. So don't be discouraged. The Lord's going to take care of it. The Lord's going to take care of it. And he's going to come and be glorified in his saints when he comes. Tremendous reality. So be encouraged. And then in the end of chapter 1, we were even more encouraged as the Apostle Paul uh, prayed that the Lord would cause them and us to live up to our great calling and that all our desires for goodness and for faith in him would be powerfully worked out and fulfilled so that Christ would be glorified as we are in him all by his grace. And then coming into chapter 2, we saw how to keep from being discouraged Because there are threats to our faith that will cause us to be discouraged. Indeed, these Thessalonians were tempted to be shaken up and frightened in the midst of the heavy persecution because false teachers were saying that they were in the day of the Lord, whether through a false letter, message, whatever it was, they were saying that. And the implication is that thus these Thessalonians are in God's wrath and they had missed the rapture. Very troubling. But the reality is Paul answers that uh, false uh, uh, narrative by sharing the truth that they couldn't be in the day of the Lord because two things have to happen that haven't happened and wouldn't happen while they're around. And the first one is that there would need to be that apostasy or the apostasy seeming to be a worldwide apostasy. And then secondly, there needs to be the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And then we looked at that ultimate sign, which is the revelation of uh, the uh, the man of lostness, the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist revealed. 
And we saw that he will not be revealed until the one who restrains him is removed from the midst. Indeed, we saw that the Holy Spirit through the church restrains the Antichrist and will restrain him up to that point until the church is removed. And even right now, the the mystery of lawlessness is at work, is even at work. But when Christ comes for his bride, the church, and the church is taken up and raptured, the man of lawlessness then will be revealed in the middle of the tribulation. Ultimately, it will be revealed, but then in the middle of the tribulation, he will be given all of Satan's power, authority, and kingdom, and he will declare himself to be God. And those who did not believe the truth concerning Christ will be deceived unto their own judgment, because they did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. And indeed, they will be judged and pay the penalty in the lake of fire for rejecting the only provision for salvation from sin, Jesus Christ. And then we saw that in contrast to the judgment of those who will reject Christ, what God does when we stand firm and hold to his truth, that he will give us and has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace through his word, and that he will comfort our hearts and strengthen us for every good work indeed. And then in our last time together in chapter 3, we saw Paul's example of how we should pray for our leaders. We were to pray that the word would go forth rapidly and be glorified, and that it would be honored, exalted in the response. We are to pray that uh, leaders would be rescued from perverse and evil men, fakers who truly do not have faith, and pray for protection for leaders. Pray for me. And then Paul, uh, for all of us, shares the Lord's faithfulness, that we need to know he's going to establish us and protect us from the evil one. Praise the Lord. And so that leads us to what we're going to see today, which is really the preparation for the final bit of commands in this book. This is preparation for it, as we'll say. And we're going to see what the Lord expects from us. We're going to have encouragement for the suffering, that's those who are suffering in Christ, to continue to obey the word of God. So let's back up a little bit and start in the beginning of chapter 3, and I'm going to read up through our passage, which is verses 4 and 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And now our passage. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing well and will continue to do what we or excuse me that you are con, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command and may the lord direct your hearts into the love of god and into the steadfastness of christ and then at that point he begins to give his final commands in this book for the Thessalonians Now today, I believe we're going to see two things particularly that will help us understand really the nuts and bolts on how to obey the Lord. We're going to see that. We're going to see that. And we're going to see, first of all, that we cannot truly obey him unless we have a real relationship with him. You see, so many people try to obey the Lord, they don't have a relationship with Jesus. We'll see you have to have a relationship with Jesus And from that relationship by faith will come about, as we will see, obedience. So look at verse 4. And we have confidence 
in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Uh oh, people don't like to hear that. We gotta obey commands? Uh, there's so many churches that talk about that. Well, commands? The reality is, Paul is talking about commands. Those are commands from God through Paul to do certain things. And the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, to you, the less Thessalonians, we've got confidence in the Lord concerning you. Now, it's interesting. This passage begins with an and, which really signifies it's connected. It's a, it, there's different conjunctions translated and in Greek, and this is one of them that is kind of a little less strong, but it does point to a continuation of what's been spoken, maybe further thought. And so what has he been talking about? Well, in verses 1 through 3, he's talking about the things, the final things, finally, which the term means, as for the rest, he's got a few things to say before he closes out what he's going to say. And he's already talked about the need for prayer and also God's faithfulness to protect us. And now he's going to talk about obedience. He's going to talk about obedience. And so he says here, and we have confidence in the Lord. The term confidence here means to be persuaded. You could translate it persuaded. We're persuaded. Uh, it, it, it means to be fully convinced. And it's in a tense and a mood in Greek that speaks of the real deal. It's, a, it's an actual thing. It's the real thing. And also that it, they had confidence. It's a done deal. And they still do have confidence. They've had it sometime in the past and they still have it. We are fully persuaded concerning in the Lord concerning you. Now the you is the Thessalonians. And notice how he qualifies it. We're, we have confidence in the Lord. This is really important. He's not saying our confidence is in the Lord. That's implied everywhere else. They trust the Lord. But we have confidence in the Lord. Well, what does that mean concerning you? Well, this is certainly not Paul's wishful thinking or feelings. And that's important to note. And that's why he adds in this term in the Lord. And we'll talk about that. You see, I can have confidence in a sense that you're going to do something, but that may just be my wishful thinking or what I desire for you. I don't really know. I don't really know. And so Paul says we have confidence, we're persuaded, and it's in the Lord concerning you. So in, evidently, in the context of his Paul's relationship with the Lord... And the Lord uh, has brought about confidence in Paul concerning Thessalonians regarding something that we'll see in a minute. And so how, is, how does that happen? Well, we'll see in a moment that these Thessalonians exhibited a true relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that was exhibited in line with the Word of God. The Word of God affirmed that what they had done and how they had responded was truly an evidence that they were saved. You see, the only thing we can have true confidence about or be persuaded about are the things that God has declared. And when those things are declared and they're rightly applied to the circumstance, situation, or person, we can have confidence in that. And evidently Paul knew about these Thessalonians and was confident, he obviously knew about them, concerning the truth of God in regards to them, as we'll see. So what was his confidence about? What was his confidence in the Lord, not at wishful thinking, but confidence, fully persuaded in the Lord? 
He says, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. We've had it. We still have it concerning you in the Lord concerning you that, here you go, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. That's a pretty strong statement. That's a pretty wonderful statement if you think about it as a believer. Paul uh, and his companions, Silvanus, Silvanus and Timothy, were completely convinced in the Lord that these Thessalonians were obeying, doing. The term doing means to do, which means to obey. You know, obedience is not simply a, a thought. There's action behind obedience. There's doing behind it. He's saying that you're doing and will continue to do. And what is it that they are doing and will continue to do? What we command. The apostle Paul was, yes, just that, an apostle. The foundation of the church built on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. He brought forth his word. It's now solidified in the scriptures. But in that, in that foundational time, God was bringing forth his word through the apostles and prophets, Paul being an apostle. And so he's speaking of obedience to the word of God, as we will see. The word that had here in this situation come through the Apostle Paul. He's saying, we have confidence you are obeying and you will continue to obey what we command. You see, folks, I've mentioned this before, but in churches these days, obedience is a dirty word. People talk about obedience, yet uh, we don't see it in the lives of many believers. We don't see it from very large things to very simple things. How many people do you know that do not lean on their own understanding, but all their ways acknowledge Him, who trust in the Lord with all their heart, who obey what He says no matter what is going on? Now, we're not perfect. We fail. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But we're going to see believers, by and large, are going to obey. Are going to obey. What did we see in the Great Commission? Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples, verse 19, of all the nations. Baptizing, that's affirming they're saved. Don't disciple someone that isn't saved. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe, which means to obey, all that I commanded you, Jesus says, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Discipleship is teaching, instruction, so that those who are instructed will obey what Jesus says. It's about obedience. That's the Great Commission. Yes, you've got to be saved and there's evangelism in that, but the Great Commission is about teaching his people to obey him through his word. All that he said. The scripture is clear that believers are to obey his word. And Jesus made it really clear that there's a distinction between those who say they are believers and those who don't. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. After he shares his truth, he explains something about those who hear and do versus those who hear and do not do. Doing is obeying, by the way. Paul said you'll continue to do, right? You're doing, you'll continue. Matthew seven twenty four. Jesus concludes his teaching here on what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and the term acts on them is the exact same verb used in our passage, does them. The same word, hears them 
and does it. Hears it and does it. He says, well, maybe consider to a wise man. This is an analogy. It's a, it's a picture. Who built his house upon the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone, now this is another group of people, right? Who hears these words of mine and does not literally do them. There's two groups. All, both groups here, one group does. One group does. He says here, we'll be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew. It burst against that house and it fell and great was its fall. There are hearers who do, and we'll see in a minute because they have a real relationship with Jesus, and there are hearers who don't do because they don't have a real relationship with Jesus. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 21. James chapter 1, 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That's the way we should come to the word, by the way. That's the way we come to it. We confess sin and we receive the word of God. Okay? And then he says here, he says here, but prove yourselves to be what? Doers of what? The word. That's obeying the word. When you obey, you're doing it. Okay? Not merely hearers who delude themselves. They're deluded hearers. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The implication here, the illustration is, you know, you look in the mirror, you see who you are, right? But then you go away and you don't really, you've immediately forgotten that. So you're hearing the word, it may be convicting you for the moment, whatever it is, you walk away, it's done, it's gone. It doesn't affect you at all. But he who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's the word of God, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, shall be blessed in what he does. And folks, doing his will is obeying his word. Now, churches will say, some will say, you're being legalistic if you're talking about obedience. No, it's obedience from a changed life. Yes, it's total legalism if your life isn't changed and you're not abiding in Christ. But the commands are the same. It's just what's underneath. If you're not trusting in Christ and you're not a true believer and you're trying to do his word, that's legalism. But if you are his and you are trusting in him and you are obeying his word, that is a real relationship with Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And this is also found in Matthew. And in Matthew, it's a little different words, but it helps us understand what he's saying. Luke chapter 8, verse 20. So Jesus gets a report that his family, his mother and his family's out there, and they're trying to come intervene because they're, they're thinking in context. He's, he's kind of maybe kind of cuckoo, you know? They hadn't really figured it out yet, okay? They were a little concerned about Jesus, and so they wanted to see him. Now, the opposite is true. It's God and human flesh doing exactly what is right and perfect. Luke chapter 8, verse 20. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. Now, in Matthew, he says, pointing to his, to his disciples, he says, 
who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my real relatives? What is the higher uh, relationships that I have than my family? It is those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then notice here in Luke chapter 8, it says, But he answered and said to him, My mother and my brothers are those who what? Hear the word of God and what? Do it. Do it. Those are the ones I'm related to spiritually. That's what he's saying. And you see, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he enables your heart to receive the word of God and then to love the God of the word, as we'll see. He enables us to do that. He even puts his word on our hearts. Jesus himself was our perfect example of obedience, by the way, as he lived by faith and gave himself for us. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And it's interesting that we have a command to obey right after the example of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, this mind, think this way, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Part of the reasons why you don't obey is because pride is in the way, by the way. But Jesus, being perfect and sinless, being God, humbled himself. Even though he was God in human flesh, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then, therefore, he was highly exalted. We see it in the next few verses because of his obedience. And then look down in verse uh, 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, it's implied as believers, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Obedience is our salvation working out because God is at work in us, in us. That's how it works out. And simply put, working out our salvation is obeying the Lord in the context of faith, by the way. Not legalism, but faith. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then shall we say, or what, excuse me, what then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching in which you were committed. You became obedient to the word you were taught. You were, you, what you were taught, you obeyed. And he says here, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness, resulting in sanctification. You see, the word sets us apart when we obey it. Jesus said, sanctify them, prayed in thy word. Thy word is truth. So then back in our passage, 
In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 4, he says, we're fully persuaded. We've been persuaded. We're still persuaded. And it's our persuading is in, our persuasion is in the Lord. Our confidence is in the Lord concerning you, Thessalonians, that you are obeying. And the implication is what we commanded. And that you will continue to do what we command. You see, the Thessalonians had already exhibited obedience earlier. But Paul had commanded them many things in the first book. Even in the last chapter, chapter 5, there were 22 specific commands. 22 specific commands. We're convinced you're obeying, guys and gals. And why was he convinced? We saw it already. He was convinced in the Lord. You see, they had a real relationship with Jesus. And when someone has a real relationship with Jesus, when they're commanded with the word, they're going to respond. The Apostle Paul was pretty sure about the Corinthians, although they were messed up, that they would eventually respond. Because he instructed them. And we have that example in 2 Corinthians in the end. He said, examine yourself to see if you're in faith. But yeah, I think you are. And he expected them to to obey. And he encouraged them to do so. You see, these Thessalonians, we see, were truly saved. And it was evident. And when you know someone is truly saved, and it is evident in their life, you're going to expect that they're going to have a real relationship. Thus, they're really going to obey. And they're going to continue to obey. You know, when you come to someone where you're not sure where their heart is at with Jesus, and you share the word of God, you're going, I hope they obey. When it's someone who knows the Lord, they're going to obey. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, take a look at that. Verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus in the presence of our God and Father. We saw faith in Jesus and love. But he goes on to talk about the reality uh, later on that it was very... It was, it was, that everyone else saw it too. Your faith was broadcast all throughout Macedonia, how you turned to God from idols to serve the one and only living God, true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God, brethren, for it's only fitting, because your faith, it's there, and it grows. It's growing. We can see your faith in Jesus growing. Greatly enlarged, and the love of each of you towards one another grows even greater. He said, we give thanks in chapter 2 of uh, 1 Thessalonians because you received the word of God not as the word of men. It's a real believer. These are real believers. And there is evidence as affirmed by the word of God laid over their lives. So Paul could be confident. You see, he even understood that they were believing and obeying the word of God. They, they were, they, that God had thus chosen them. Chapter one. He says, hey, we know it. We know it. He says, knowing brethren, chapter one of first Thessalonians, verse four, his choice of you. We know that. We know that. We see the reality of the evidence of their faith in the context of their perseverance and suffering for the faith. Look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going back and forth between 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 3. I read this already, but I'm going to read it again. We, gave, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, 
and the love for each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your what? Perseverance and faith in the midst of all the persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Thessalonians, you're saved and it is evident and it is observable. It's observable. And with that, their obedience was observable also. One of their pastors. Look at First Thessalonians chapter 4. Their obedience was observable. They were obeying and it was observable. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord. For, just, just, so, excuse me, First Thessalonians 4 verse 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk. You are doing it. You received the instruction and you're walking in him. You're doing it that you may excel still more. For you know the commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. They were obeying. But they did need to excel still more, and so do we. But they were obeying, and it was evident. It was evident. So Paul was persuaded that they were true believers, as it was manifest by all of these things, faith and love, and as we see perseverance, and then obedience to the Word of God. To the Word of God. He was persuaded. And you see, obedience, as we're going to see, is one of the identifying marks of salvation. It's one of the identifying marks. You see, the Apostle Paul, he understood the correlation between faith, genuine faith, and obedience. Take, for instance, the book of Romans. It is bookmarked with this phrase. Uh, this phrase. Let's take a look. Chapter uh, 1, Romans 1, verse 5. And I'm going to read, first of all, uh, from I don't usually like the NIV, but I think the NIV in this case actually does a better job translating it. And so I'm going to read it. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through him and for his, his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call the people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. NESB, obedience of faith. Look in the end of uh, Romans chapter 16. He says here, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, Romans 16, 25, middle of verse, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now has manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Now the version says that they might believe and obey him. Faith in Jesus, in the life of a true believer, produces obedience. But there's another element of that, as we're going to see in a moment. You see, our salvation should be working out in us. And that's through obedience. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trouble, because God is at work in you. You see, we were saved unto obedience, by the way. Uh, 
talks about that in First Peter, that we would obey. That we would obey. First Peter chapter 1, he says that we were uh, chosen according to the knowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ. That's what it's about, guys and gals. If you have a relationship with Jesus, it will manifest in obedience. It will. Now, we're not perfect. We fail, and we need to confess our sins, and God has to discipline us when we're not confessing so that we would confess, so that we would be trained in the gym of discipline, so that we would uh, uh, have that peaceful fruit of righteousness. But by and large, believers are going to obey. They're going to obey. The hymn writer got it right. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's true. That's true. So if someone was to look at your life, would they recognize that you're a believer? By obedience in your life to the word of God? Would they recognize that? In the areas that he's called you to obey? You see, if you're not obeying God's word, it is an evidence you do not know him. It is an evidence. God says so, not me. God says so. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. I'm not talking about perfectly, but I'm talking about by and large obedience. Obedience in the spheres of our life that he has commanded us, which is every area. He's commanded us how we are to relate to one another, how we're to relate to him, how we're to relate in the body. He's commanded us how we're to relate to the world. He's commanded us all these things. How we're to work, how we're to relate to our work. All those things. We're going to see later on in Second Thessalonians, he's going to give commands about work to the freeloaders the actually doctrinally correct freeloaders. They were waiting on Jesus, so they weren't working. But he's going to command them. That's what he's laying the foundation for in this obedience portion. First John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He says don't forsake fellowship. That's his command. You shouldn't be doing that. It's implied. We're to love one another and serve one another. There's so many commands. I'm not saying we're perfect, but it's going to manifest. If Paul were here to look at your life, would he say, I'm sure you've been obeying, and I'm confident you will. Confident you will. The reality is believers obey. Now, what did Jesus say to those who thought they were saved? What was his reproof? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why? Some of you have trouble working out your salvation obeying because you don't have a salvation to work out. You've never come to faith in Jesus, so there's no heart change, no power to obey. But the Lord can change it today. If you're willing to humble yourself and admit your sin and crawl to him for salvation. He'll change your heart and he'll give you a desire to obey. And he will enable you to obey him when you trust him by faith. Obedience is the reality for believers. And yet sometimes we don't obey like we should. 
Maybe you've allowed your mind to be corrupted with sinful thoughts and desires. The world's mindset. Confess, be forgiven, renew your mind, and obey Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, obedience to the Word of God and the God of the Word is one of the defining marks of salvation. Salvation. And we can only obey if we have a real relationship with Jesus. And this is why the Lord wants us to go after those sinning brothers and sisters, to to show them where they really stand. When they don't obey, then they're treated as if they're not saved because they probably aren't. And we coddle them because we love them, whatever it might be, but we don't love God enough to do what God says in His Word regarding them for their good, to win them. So then, it's the reality for believers. And Paul was convinced they were obeying and they would obey his commands, God's word through him. Okay, so he's completely convinced. But why is he sharing this at this point? Why would he be doing so? Well, I believe context gives us the answer. If we did, if we look at what the Apostle Paul shares in the next section, verses 6 and on, he's going to command them very clearly to do some things. Look at chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren... Look at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Uh, What about verse 11? He talks about, excuse me, verse 12. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus. And then he says, but as for you, brethren, don't grow weary in doing good. That's another command. And another one, verse 14. And anyone who does not obey this instruction letter takes special note of him and that man, I do not associate with him. See, this is where it really meets the road. God says some pretty difficult commands, but they're the best thing for those people in sin. And will you obey it? It's an evidence of where your heart is at with the Lord. So I believe he's laying the framework to encourage them based on their relationship. And that's what God does. He reminds us of who we really are, and then that encourages us to continue in that walk with him and obey him. So then... Paul is completely convinced that they will that they are obeying and they will continue to obey. So how is it we can do this? First and foremost, we must have a relationship with the living God through Christ or we cannot truly obey. That's absolutely evident. And the, and the Thessalonians, they did. But how do we obey if we have a relationship? Look at our passage again. I believe we're going to see we can only obey if we abide in Jesus, love him, and trust him. That's where obedience comes from. Verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. This is an inspired desire. It's a prayer. It's a prayer. He's saying, and it's connected. This, some people think this disconnect. It's connected. This is how you obey. This is how you will obey. May the Lord do something. We can't obey unless the Lord does something. And notice what he says. May the Lord direct your hearts, first of all, into the love of God. And I believe it'd be an error to think this is just a new thought coming here. There's an and. He's going to give us the nuts and bolts on how we are able to obey in the midst of persecution and difficulty when it's really tough. When it's really tough. 
He says, may the Lord direct. The word means to cause to go straight, to guide in the right way. It implies the clearing of obstacles to go that way. May the Lord clear the obstacles and guide your heart. It's a heart issue. This is where obedience comes from. Where? Into, we need to teach our kids this too, by the way, or they'll be little legalists, okay? Into the love of what? God. The, the preposition here into speaks of direction and movement. You could translate it towards, towards the love of God. Yet what does he mean by this? The love of God. It's a difficult phrase here. It's not a difficult phrase in itself, but it's difficult to interpret. What do I mean? Is it God's love for us or our love of God? Which one is it? Which one is it? Now, I can't be absolutely certain. I think both elements are here, but I think the context, uh, it's speaking in the context based on the obedience he is calling upon and understands they will do. The context is actually our love of God. May God clear the obstacles and guide your hearts to love him. That's how you obey. That's where obedience comes from. Clear the obstacles. Remove the obstacles and guide your heart into loving him. By the way, when we love ourselves, whatever we love, we obey, by the way. Whatever we love, we love ourselves in that moment, we obey ourselves. We love our desires over God, we, we obey our desires. You see, I think it points towards God removing the obstacles in our hearts so that we would love him more and more. Folks, because obedience to the word of God reveals a love for God. We're going to see that. It reveals a love for God. You see, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through his spirit, Romans 5.5. It's been poured out in us. And you know what? The scripture talks about at times the love of God, that phrase, the love of God. Now, it talks about God's love in other places, love of Christ. But this particular phrase, love of God, more often than not speaks of the one's love of God. Although it can be translated the other way, God's love for us. In uh, John chapter 5, 42, he says, But I know that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. He's talking to the non-believers. You don't have it. You don't got it. It's absent. It's absent. You see, non-believers do not have the love of God in them. We believers have the love of God in our hearts. It's been poured out in our hearts. And you see... A love for God within the love of God will cause us and manifest in obedience to the word of God. This is where our verse connects. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. May God clear the obstacles and guide your hearts into a love, I believe, of God in context which causes you to obey him. You see, if we don't love God, our obedience is not really obedience. If we're not motivated by obeying him in a context of love. What does John say in 1 John 2, 5? We read it earlier. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. Okay? By this, we know we're in him. Do you see that? Do you see the word that's together? John, 1 John chapter 5. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, obedience is an evidence of love for God. 
It's the love of God. He says, this is the love of God obeying him. This is seeing him as more important than yourself. Seeing his desires is more important than your desires. Seeing his will is more important than your will, whether your will is right or wrong. Sometimes we think because our will is right, we want to do it. Not so. Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. God loved us so much in sending his son Jesus for us to save us from our sins. Now because his spirit has poured out in our hearts, we can love him because he's loved us. You see, out of a genuine love relationship, we can love him. But we need to see him rightly. Because it's when we see him rightly, we begin to love him more. You see? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And you see, God is the one who directs your heart into his love. God is the one who inclines our hearts to obey. Let me share some passages about that. Godly men in the Old Testament prayed this. First Chronicles 29:18. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and our fathers, preserve forever the intentions of the heart of thy people and direct their heart to thee. To thee. First Kings 8:50 through 8. That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and ordinances which he commanded our fathers. Psalm 119.36, incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Incline my heart to you and your word, to obey you. Change my heart. May the Lord direct, call the obstacles in your heart from loving him into the love of God. Have you ever prayed this way? Incline my heart to obey your word, Lord God. Read through uh, Psalm 118. You see it throughout. And you see, because when we see Christ as who he really is and how much he loves us, uh, he loved us. We don't love first. Uh, we love because he loved us. You see? We can love God because God loved us. You see? And it's the love of Christ, his love for us, that controls us to love him and obey. By the way, that's how the word love of God works both ways, doesn't it? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, in the context of obeying God in relationship to his duty in Christ to these Corinthians and the difficulties they were going through in relationship to that, he says, this is what controls us to do this. For the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded something, this is what's got to be going on in our heads. That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Living for Jesus. So then, he prays. May the Lord remove the obstacles, direct your heart to obey this is a good prayer, not only for uh, for them, but for us. Remove the obstacles to my non-love of you in certain areas where I love myself in my way more than you. You see, it's through love of God. What's the greatest commandment? Teacher, Matthew 22, verse 36. 
which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That's it. And may the Lord direct your heart into that. Now we're going to see that only happens when we depend upon him and trust him that he directs our hearts. Lord, direct my heart to love you in every way. Remove the obstacles. Help me obey your word in every area. Help me obey you. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15? What did he say? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Puts a whole new picture on the great commission and the great commandment, doesn't it? It's about obedience to Jesus. That's what it's about. Now, on a side note, I hear so many times people talk about false brethren, false teachers, bad pastors, movie clip teachers, peddlers of the word. They say, they love Jesus so much. And I say no, because they're not obeying God's word in the most important area there is. Paul solemnly charged Timothy to preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll gather for themselves movie clip preachers or, or teachers after their own desires and pay attention to myths. They feed you a little bit of word here and there, but they starve you, evil people. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus says that. So with that in mind, every area of life, if you love him, you're going to keep his word. And when we have a lack of love, we're going to disobey. We're not perfect. We fail. We need to confess and be restored. God is gracious. Jesus paid for the penalty for our sins. And that payment should motivate us in the forgiveness of sins, in his grace to obey him, to turn quickly from failures, to turn away from evil, to, to walk away in Christ, to, to, fall, to turn from temptation in Christ. We mess up, but we need to obey. It's part of a real relationship with Jesus. So what would, your, what would the answer be to the question in areas of your life where Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? In what areas are you lacking love for Jesus? Are you not obeying? Be praying, Lord, incline my heart, direct it into a love of you that I would obey your word. Direct it, Lord. It's a good prayer, he'll answer. So then, we must abide in Christ, allowing him to incline our hearts to love him so that we would obey. It's got to be a real relationship. Now, notice he continues, and this applies specifically to those who are suffering, but we will all suffer if we're trusting Jesus. And he says, and may the Lord direct your hearts back in our passage to the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, we're going to see this has to do with perseverance, which comes from faith. It's the steadfastness of Christ. That the Lord direct your hearts towards, remove the obstacles, towards, and it's a heart issue, the steadfastness of Christ. So steadfastness, what does that mean? The word comes from the Greek word hupomone. It means to abide under or remain under. It speaks of endurance or patient endurance. May the Lord direct your hearts into the patient endurance of Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, our Savior, when he was on this earth, manifest a perfect, patient endurance in the midst of suffering for the will of God. 
Although being fully God and yet being fully man, he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. And he endured. First Peter chapter 2, let's turn there, verse 20. First Peter 2, verse 20. For what credit is there if you sin and you're treated harshly and you endure it with patience? No credit there, right? That's the answer. But if you do what is right, do what is right, that's obedience, by the way, do what is right and suffer for it, for, for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, who was no, and, and no, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled in return, he did not revile, or reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That is our example. We can't obey unless we're trusting. You see, faith will produce obedience and then perseverance. James 1, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. May the Lord lead you into the endurance of Christ in the context of trusting him. May you endure. You're going to endure. May you do it. And that happens in the context of obedience to the word of God. You're not going to endure through trials if you're not obeying. If you're not obeying God, you're not going to endure through trials. You've got to trust him and obey him. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. So then, are you going through difficult times? May the Lord direct your heart into the endurance of Christ that you would trust and endure to the end. What a fantastic passage to prepare us for the commands that are coming. They're coming. They're kind of difficult. Some of these commands are saying, even for the guy that won't work, don't associate with him. That's kind of hard to shun a brother or sister, isn't it? That's where we kind of fall short in our obedience, isn't it? When someone's sinning and we don't do the right thing. Now, certainly love covers a multitude of sins. This is a specific situation that we'll see all the details and we'll have all the commands. And there's no excuse for us not to obey what God says if we love him. So what does the Lord expect from us? Simply to obey. That's what the Christian life is about. That's what discipleship is about. It's about obeying Jesus. Learning and being taught how to obey Jesus in all he didn't set. There's some of you here today that may be religious and talk spiritual things, but when it comes to specifics in your life, you follow your desires rather than God's. You lean on your own understanding, trusting, and rather than trusting him. This is an evidence something is wrong, is wrong. I want to ask you, in your marriage, would the Lord say, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? At work, uh, why do you call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he says? In your relationships, why do you call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he says? How about how you deal with difficulty in your life? Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he says? The answer might be you don't know him, and he wants you to see yourself rightly so that you could be saved, and then you will be enabled, not perfectly, but to obey him, to obey him. Well, what about as believers? If you're a believer, there's going to be obedience in your life. 
It's going to be obedience to what he's called you to do. Not perfect, but there's going to be obedience. It's going to be obedience. You're going to obey if you're abiding in him and trusting in him. So then how can we do so? We have to have a relationship with him. And secondly, we need to allow his love in us to cause us to love him, to obey him, so that he be glorified and we would endure to the end. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. It's very convicting, and we fail so greatly in so many areas, but yet those of us who are true believers, there's obedience, and that's not because of us. It's because of you, because you are faithful to produce the life of Christ in us when we trust you. May we continue to trust you. May you direct our hearts into a greater love of your son, Jesus. May we be directed into the perseverance of Christ. May we trust him and thus endure. Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who is who as if anyone looks at their life, they would be skeptical, not, not judging, but just the reality. I pray that they might examine their hearts to see if they're in the faith. And if they are, Lord, that your word would permeate their hearts, your love would control them and control us so that we would obey your word and you would be glorified as we trust your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.